Hello, hello, and a very warm welcome back to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat low interest rates and get you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. And here we are with episode three of season four. Please don't forget to check the new mag link in the bio. But of course, this week we have got loads of stuff really. It's a really interesting interview with Money Farm's Chris Rudden to get your teeth into and he's going to be discussing the landscape of uh, the simplified investing world. Sometimes they're called digital wealth managers and there's been loads of them launched and there's been lots of activity with emerging and very exciting area of, of fintech financial technology. So we're going to be discussing that landscape and the technologies that are sort of required in general and then also have a little think as to what may happen in the future. So good interview for you there. But of course, for all that, we're going to take a little look at a few stories, which includes a look at Chinese markets as we usher in the year of the tiger, which happened this week, February 1st. There's also a report from the industry body, the Investment Association, the IA, as they had a look at what we were buying over 2021, which is always interesting. And then, of course, there's the latest in markets. And we've got a couple of stories as well on companies uh, in the tech sector, um, which you'll definitely know. Facebook is one of them having released some pretty disappointing results today. And I think some sort of some interesting insight into what's really going on as, as some of those big boys do do battle with each other. Okay, let's start with Chinese New Year. Um, so we had Chinese New Year, it fell on February 1st, as I sort of said, and we're now into the year of the tiger. So what I thought I'd do was have a little look eastward and focus on how China specifically, its market, has been performing. And if I'm honest, <laughs> over, over the past year or so it it's not really been a roaring success it's it's and it's not been great from an ESG perspective either which of course is quite popular with retail investors the MSCI China index so that index is a combination of all the largest and sort of mid-sized companies on the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges over the year last year that was down 21% so it really it really had a bit of a bruising year What's interesting is, nonetheless, I think retail investors are very interested in China-focused strategies uh, because I think they're buying into this the story around China. They can see the long-term potential of a market with a rapidly burgeoning, you know, middle class and you know very strong growth rates and an economy that's going to overtake the U.S. in a very short period of time and be very dominant globally. So the, I think. I think we can understand that kind of story. And um, um, therefore, it's transpired that actually some of those strategies have been quite popular last year, even though the Chinese market hasn't done very well. So if we have a look at last year at Interactive Investor, we're having a little chat with them and talked about some of their, their bestseller lists. And uh, you find a few strategies in there. So in terms of funds, these are open-ended funds on the bestseller list was Bailey Gifford's China Fund. Uh, it was the only one, actually. Um, uh, Bailey Gifford is a great, is a, is a great company. Um, but uh, I thought that was quite interesting. When you then go into the closed-ended world, so investment trusts, actually, there's only three 
specifically focused strategies around China in the investment trust space. I mean, there's only 400 investment trusts. So there's three focused ones. But interestingly, two of them were in their bestseller lists. So these have been doing quite well. One of them reached number seven in, in their list for 2021. That was Fidelity China Special Situations. Another reached number 11. That was JP Morgan's China Growth and Income Trust. So interesting strategies there and how investment trusts have sort of have been uh, the pick for retail investors, and rightly so, I think. I was also having a little chat to Dmitry Lipsky, who is head of funds research at Interactive Investor. And he sort of shone a bit of light on why China hasn't performed so well. He, he said that it was sort of fraught with a number of stumbling blocks, in particular, the the Communist Party's crackdown on, on, on the tech giants. There was a lot of news flow at the back end of last year around that. Also, the US-China trade tensions, which have gone on for a little while. And, you know, add to that, I think, a rising uh, potentially military tension over Taiwan. And then uh, it's COVID policy, which has been really to seal its borders almost entirely for two years, which all of that together is quite negative for an economy. And it's certainly exacerbated long term sort of structural inbuilt weaknesses that it, that it was already grappling with, like its big debt problem, um, overcapacity in some sectors as well, uh, particularly the state owned enterprises and an aging population as well is never great for an economy, Japan particularly, is, is is suffering from that particular issue. But it seems, you know, opportunity cost is too high, really, in the longer term. Um, you know, it's it's this emerging middle class, this burgeoning middle class that I was talking about, has sort of powered its growth, is, is tipped to sort of get the country out of this malaise around coronavirus, really, and, and fuel its transformation from this very export-driven economy, which makes it quite volatile and um, very reliant on what goes on in, in other countries, to one that's much more focused on, on domestic consumption. That really is what any economy wants to do. And it's why the US is the crown jewel, really, is because, you know, so in the US, 70% of its growth is powered by itself, by domestic consumption. And that's very much what, what China is pivoting towards. So I think, you know, that is why, uh, um, you know, it, and of course, it's, it's painful when you shift like that, it can upset growth and, and therefore you get these sorts of bumps in the road. But I think that's what investors are really looking, looking at it over the long term. So yeah, very interesting there. On to the investment association. So this is the trade body for most of the UK's investment managers from the investment management industry. There are some others, the AIC, for example, the Association of Investment Companies, they deal with the 400 or so investment trusts that there are. So this is um, for the majority, the main bit of the industry, really. And that their clients represent £9.4 trillion pounds in, in assets under management, which, interesting, I thought was it's almost identical to the amount of money that BlackRock manage. So one US company manages the same amount of assets as the entirety of the UK investment management industry. So yeah, um, interesting there. And, and what they were looking at was um, what people were buying, what investors were buying over 2021. Normally, we sort of look at data from Coolstone, a private company. This is just a sort of big report that the IA compiled. So I thought it'd be quite interesting just to have a little look. And it's the usual suspects, really. They found responsible investment funds were 
very, very popular, had set a record last year. So up £4.3 billion invested to £16 billion invested over 2021. Active strategies as well. So funds that have fund managers selecting investments were way more popular than passive strategies. So funds that are just tracking markets. And they found that active funds pulled in £25.2 billion versus £18.3 billion for the trackers, for the passive funds. The UK also got really hammered last year and set a record for that. So money flowing out of UK funds reached £5.3 billion in 2021. And it smashed the previous record of £4.9 billion set in 2016 when the UK decided to vote leave. Shares in general were the most popular assets over things like you know bonds or mixed asset classes, things like that. £14.8 billion went into, into shares, into equity funds. And Emma Wall, she's head of investment as- uh, analysis at uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne. And she was saying that it was, re- you know, it was really good. It was fantastic to see loads of investors putting money into equity funds over that 12 months and participating in, in the rally, which was, it was pretty good over 2021 as we, we started to see the, the light really preference to the responsible investment funds proved that that 2020 year which was also pretty good for those strategies was not just this one trick pony and that this structural trend of people wanting to do well by doing good is is here to stay and and uh you know i certainly believe that too it's a big shift really to you know this will be the way to invest rather than a way to invest um so yeah she said that was all pretty good and you know it's going to be interesting to see what happens with a bit more market volatility that we're sort of seeing at at, at the moment and and the potential for negative returns after uh, after a strong run so interesting stuff there i thought from the ia right on to markets and the story here really broader story is that investors are trying to position themselves in these sort of difficult crosswinds of rising inflation and interest rates hangover effects of the pandemic on supply chains so log jams there and the tense geopolitical situation in europe surrounding ukraine and and russian aggression all of which is quite tricky to sort of know exactly which way to go really on inflation i think that we are beginning to see a bit of a shift amongst economists that the inflation that we're seeing is stickier and likely to stay a little bit longer then, you know, where they were before, which was to sort of largely side with the central banks on these transitory assumptions about inflation. So that's a bit of an interesting shift. And I think the belief is that, you know, they believe this will lead to faster interest rate hikes and and sharper, you know, rises to the cost of living um, than, expected, than was expected before. And, you know, all of this could sort of hamper global economic growth so that's that's not great in the u.s we saw some mixed results really from the tech companies two of which i'll address in just a sec but you know good results from the bigger players and you know that's that's been positive for for stock markets a bit this week and helped the tech sector recover a little bit from this broad sell-off that we've seen generally for tech for growth that has sort of lingered since November when inflationary concerns started to sort of become a bit more apparent. Um, 
positive results as well for Apple, Microsoft and Alphabet. So that's those big players that are doing quite well. But Facebook did not have a good time of it, really. And that's rattled markets. You know, they've got three billion users. So, you know, their influence is quite widespread and it caused a big plunge in their shares. 20% plunge, which was quite remarkable, really. In the UK, on the day of recording today, on Thursday, the Bank of England decreased, increased its base rate to 0.5%. Because of inflation, seeing a lot, you know, the 30-year high um, in terms of uh, inflation prints that for for December, that was 5.4% then. So we are seeing some nasty inflation and, and the Bank of England is moving to sort of curb that. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was expected by markets really. So there wasn't an awful lot of a, of, a, of a big reaction really from UK markets when that came through. In Europe, the ECB decided to keep rates on hold. It says that its its situation is very different from from uh, another economy like the US. But you know they're starting to change their tone a little bit. You know before they said well, it could go either way type thing, whereas I think now they're sort of beginning to accept that um, you know it's it's a rising concern inflation really, and that comes with you know a five point four uh, sorry a five point one percent January print. So, uh, yeah, we'll see where that goes. And then final thing, I think, is just, you know, this potential for war in Eastern Europe, which is sort of having um, having a bit of effect on, on how people think about the bloc. Um, it's very uncertain, though, at the moment. And I think politicians, analysts, I think even Putin himself is unsure about what exactly will happen next. But you know, that, that does create some anxiety, some uncertainty for markets. All in all, for the fortnight, the FTSE 100 is slightly down 19 points to 7,568. The stock 600 is down 9 points to 474. The S&P 500 is up 107 points to 4,589. And the Nikkei 225 is down 532 points to 27,241. Okay, let's get on to companies before our interview with Money Farms' Chris Rudden. And let's start with Facebook, really, which hasn't been having a good time this week. It released some results, and what it showed was that it had undershot the forecasts by quite a way on a few fronts, really, and investors weren't impressed. They sold the stock in droves, and it wiped off about $200 billion of its market value. Uh, which is now about $665 billion in total. Now, I mentioned that it had 3 billion users. It's pretty widespread, its influence. And that also means that you can't, you know, it's it's pretty dominant. We can't just think that this is it for Facebook now, really, because it can obviously use that dominance. But there are some headwinds that that do seem to be creating some problems for Facebook. First of all, it's losing the battle for eyeballs, really, on a, on a daily basis, rivals such as TikTok are really grabbing people's attention a lot more effectively especially in younger people it's key engine for user growth and I don't know if you've had a chance to sort of download and have a look at TikTok it is rather addictive uh you know it's about these short sort of no longer than 90 second videos I think and they're designed the whole platform is designed for sort of grabbing and keeping your attention it's got this very clever system of of tagging videos very accurately and then these algorithms learn what you like very very quickly i mean you just you download it you set it up you get going and and within you know uh, minutes it sort of 
already learned quite a lot about you. So it's sort of fascinating from that perspective. Facebook have, have launched this thing, Reels, these little short videos I'm sure you would have seen as well on Facebook designed to mimic this, but they're nowhere near as good. The platform is way more uh, distracting and it also sucks people towards videos away from the streams where they can sort of make a lot more money on, on targeted advertising. Which brings me to my second point. So revenues in its advertising units have also underperformed pretty badly and and the big part of this is the privacy changes from apple which have stopped it tracking users and targeting them with personalized ads so effectively apple did back down a little bit they're allowing this sort of collection of aggregated data but it's you know it's it's not as good it's not as accurate it's not as good the targeting sort of encouraging advertisers onto closed networks where targeting is much better and i'm sure that was part of the savvy move by apple which i think has seen their their ad revenues just enormously jump and you know they are definitely concerned about privacy and rightly so but i think this was you know uh um a nice little added bonus really um on that and it and it and it's affected it seems to affect facebook more than some of the others as well because google's parent alphabet which i'll address in a sec has has been doing actually pretty well so um you know it's, it's not across the board third the metaverse i mean this is their big punt they are trying to create this digital world where you have an avatar and and uh, you can sort of go in there and have meetings and but they can sort of perhaps target you with even more sophisticated forms of quite personalized advertising but it is drinking capital and you know zuckerberg said 10 billion a year for 10 years so you know it's a lot of money that they're spending on that that plus the fact that they've got this ever expanding network of servers in order to sort of um service global users that also not only need building but regular updates as well it just all of that drinks capital and it's burning through between what it expects in 2022 to burn through between 29 and 34 billion dollars so that's really affecting its its profitability and i think the final thing to mention here which is probably maybe the the most concerning of the lot is there has been quite a bit of a loss of trust in facebook i think this and it's deep-seated and that's because of these scandals and allegations quite serious allegations around what it is doing to society to democratic societies really algorithms that can cause genuine real world harm dragging down the mental health of young people promoting lies and disinformation of which can some that can sometimes be paid for by authoritarian regimes and you know polarizing political debate in a nasty way especially in countries where the democracies are already quite fragile those are serious allegations and it and it and it affects people's view of facebook of course they own lots of other apps and things like whatsapp and stuff like that so you know how much can we really unbind facebook if we don't agree with it from our lives that's another question but it is a serious concern especially in the minds of young people but in fact all of the, all of us you know um and i think that could that that puts a big question mark over its over its future let me know what you think actually i'm really interested marcus at steps to investing.com I'd like to know what you think about this because, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I definitely have thought about this quite a lot and 
Um, it's an interesting one, I think. Okay, let's move on to our final story. Alphabet. So they've been doing pretty well. They had a bumper fourth quarter with revenues of $75.3 billion, which they posted on Wednesday. That's a 32% year-on-year increase and $3 billion more than was expected. Its shares have jumped 9% and it's put its market value, its total market value, back near $2 trillion. And the thanks has been to its advertising unit, which has been shooting the lights out, 36% jump in revenues. Its exec said that it's changes to AI enhancements that has improved the effectiveness of the company's ads, which I thought was quite interesting. But there are lingering concerns over these changes that we talked about with Apple's changes on, on what it could do to Google's business. But for the moment, it seems to be fine. Elsewhere in the business, we saw YouTube growth did fall. But that was following a comparison last year to, to the sorry the year before, which uh, was unusually high. You know, a lot of a lot of advertisers had jumped on the plat- platform in the absence of sort of other options, and so you know that part of that is that comparative figure. But also, you know, the cloud business continues to show strong growth alongside the other big players in that market, which is Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure. I think the last thing to mention, if you're thinking of buying some shares, it's actually done a rare thing. It's done a stock split, which is uh, 20 for one. So for every one share that you have, you now have 20 of them at a 20th of the value. It doesn't do anything in terms of your returns. It just literally, I mean, as it as it says, it just splits the stock up so that it makes each individual share much cheaper, which means they're kind of more affordable for retail investors if you're not buying fractional shares. So that's it from Alphabet. All right, let's move on to our interview with Chris Rudden from Money Farm. So one of the big innovations in the investment industry over the past decade has been the emergence of simplified digital investment platforms such as Nutmeg, Pension B, or Money Farm. And broadly what they offer investors is an easy route to market via quite quick assessments of their goals and attitudes to risk before guiding you into one of their usually trim selection of fund of fund portfolios that invest quite widely across different assets and markets. But they are evolving all the time. And I think what we're seeing is they're increasingly adding on new services to support this whole process, as you will see in a week or so when we launch our platform reviews within the new website. So to chat to me a bit about the landscape and how these digital wealth managers, as they're commonly called, are evolving, I have Money Farms Investment Consultant Manager, Chris Rudden, on the pod. Chris, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks thanks for having me. Okay, so you describe Money Farm as a hybrid digital wealth manager. So do you want to explain exactly what we mean by this, but also how it compares to other players within the industry and also who you're kind of targeting as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the the hybrid element really is we still like to maintain very much a human angle on things. Um, Particularly, I mean, that's the team that I I look after, the investment consultant team. And what we find is we find that clients generally, obviously, you know, we want to give them the benefits that which come with the digitalization, such as, you know, lower costs, more accessibility, this sort of thing. Um, But also trying to maintain some of the perks of 
some of the more traditional advisory where you have a very much a, a you know a dedicated person to talk to build a you know an actual proper relationship with someone and and have someone you know a point of contact to always come to if you have any questions or to kind of talk through your situation um what we find is this this generates much more trust um between kind of us and the client and that that you know the, the key really is ultimately to make the client feel comfortable feel at home and as a result feel comfortable with kind of the invested in the investments that are going on um i think broadly speaking you know this new new section of of the industry that you mentioned um i always feel it falls very much into this middle ground so on the one side you have your traditional kind of wealth managers um and then on the other side you have the kind of digital trading platforms you know you kind of do it yourself once i think where we like to fit into the middle uh is and then take on basically the the best of both worlds so you know some of the good things about a digital trading platform is you know they're accessible very transparent very easy to use you know as you you touched on the big word that we we obviously like is simplicity uh and you know kind of lower cost as well but obviously you when you're using them you're very much left to your own devices um you know you not just in terms of choosing the investments themselves but also actually choosing what level of risk you should be investing you know how how you should manage your exposure what you know what your time frames are this sort of thing on the other side you know your traditional managers they're much more relationship-led much more human touch you know you kind of had the guidance to put you into the right portfolios for your goals and obviously the portfolios are then managed for you but then you're lacking some of the other points that make the digital kind of training platforms good so where we want to do is kind of get the the, the, the best of both worlds um create something which is very accessible you know very transparent very easy to use simple simplifying the process for everybody but obviously providing more of the relationship side of things and obviously not completely leaving people on their own with their investments and they actually have uh, somebody managing it for them and making sure it's in the right risk level for their goal and this sort of thing. So that's kind of all about kind of where we fit in, I would say. Um, ultimately, we feel that this is something for everybody. Um, we have people who invest our, our minimums, you know, which is £500, and we have clients who have millions with us, um, and it's everything in between. Uh, and I think that's kind of the charm of the service. And I would say, broadly speak, speaking, we get our clients from kind of three different areas. Some people come first from cash, you know, they, they've never really invested before. Very, very common um, in the UK that, you know, people don't like to invest. They kind of have cash or, you know, bricks and mortar, should we say. Um, and then on the other side, we have people who um, they will previously have had a kind of a, a traditional IFA or something like that, but certainly found that they were quite expensive. And so decided that, you know, they could get a similar service for less cost. Um, and then the third is kind of people who are managing investments themselves, but they, you know, they just didn't have the time or didn't want to take the time or just wanted to pass it on to someone else really i find it interesting that you've got clients who have millions there so it it, it seems as if you you do have uh some people who feel like that you offer enough in terms of that support that you would traditionally get from a financial advisor when you have quite large amounts of wealth which can be quite complex to sort of plan around and manage yeah absolutely absolutely a lot of these places you know for example they might have i mean the one area where we do should we say i don't have the full suite is something like tax for example as you alluded to but you know a lot of people they'll have uh, their own accountant or something to manage that side of things so simply what they're looking for from us is where should i be invested you know and obviously can you invest it for me which is obviously something that we offer and um you know particularly at those, you know, at those levels for, for a very kind of low cost. Okay. And we, I mean, as I mentioned, we've, we've got uh, platform reviews that are, that are going to be launched within the new site. And we've been looking at a number of 
digital wealth managers. I may, I'm going to add, they, they're also often called robo-advisors as well. And um, what we found was that the detail on the investing side of things seems to be light. Do you think there's a limit as to how much detail your typical clients really need about investing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who come and say that they find it can be incredibly overwhelming. You know, you go to a, you know, a website and they'll throw literally everything at you at the same time. You know, suddenly it's like, you know, here's the sharp ratio, here's here's the beta of a fund, here's all of these sort of things. And, you know, they kind of shut down a little bit and, you know, it's it's all just a bit much. I think the key is really to offer whatever information is required for each person, should we say. So starting off with something that's very kind of easy to digest and very simple to look at, very kind of easy to use, but obviously have in arrears stuff that you need for those who want to find out more. But I think it really depends on, because obviously you're offering a very different set of uh, decisions for, for the clients. Because obviously if you come to a do-it-yourself platform, you're looking to, you know, for yourself so you need to know the specifics about the fund what's the correlation with this what's you know how, how well has it performed what's again sharp ratio this sort of thing and so that's why their websites are built for that you know they have information on everything and it's a lot uh, whereas i think when they come to someone like us who manage it for them they're facing a very different set of decisions and so you know a lot of the time it's just like how, how good are you guys at what you do is essentially the breakdown of, of most decisions you know most of the questions that we face for example you know most people come to us, they'll ask for our past performance. They won't necessarily ask for our kind of investment white paper, uh, just because ultimately that's that's not the decision they're making. They're just saying, are you good enough to handle my money? Fine. Okay. They, you know, here you go. But then again, obviously, once people are up and running, we think transparency is quite a big thing for us. And when people are, you know, when they are invested, we try and provide as much detail as we can. And particularly for those who are interested, that, you know, that will be biweekly newsletters, monthly videos, kind of in-depth quarterly reports on their portfolios, you know, investor events, all of these sort of things. So we do try and maintain quite a lot of, quite a good information stream for those who are interested, but that's, people can take it or they can leave it. Um, that's entirely up to them, as long as we provide it for them. What intrigues me is that I haven't, I don't think I've seen, unless maybe in some more of the nuanced portfolios, such as the sustainability areas of investing. But generally, it doesn't seem as if these, your, you know, your section of the industry, the digital wealth managers, seem to be using actively managed funds. It's always ETFs or trackers, you know, funds that are passively managed that, that simply track uh, markets. Why is that? Why are active funds never used? So it's a good question, actually. Um, it's not as though we are anti-active funds per se. You know, it's not a kind of a staunch never say never. But I think our key really, our key goal is to maintain good value for clients and keep the costs down. And particularly as we look forward and, you know, your expected returns are slightly more muted because of the raucous markets we've had in recent periods. I think the key is really, you know, look at your costs because that's the one thing that you can control. And that's where, for example, we use ETFs because, you know, they, they tend to be much, much better value than their equivalents. But again, not to say, like, as you say, you know, if you're going into a slightly more niche area of investing, then that's where you can potentially look into the benefits that an active fund can have. But when we are building our portfolios, we feel that the, you know, an ETF will provide all the same diversification benefits, but for a much lower cost. That's interesting. I was I once had a chat with uh, Romina Savova, who is the CEO of um, of Pension B, and she described it as swapping the certainty of low cost for the uncertainty of active outperformance. And um, you know, I can see how, from a business perspective, that that makes sense. Really, 
but you're, you're just dealing in certainty. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, for example, if you look at a market like the US, for example, US equities, they are what you call so informationally efficient, where it's so difficult to get ahead with any kind of research, particularly on the kind of the larger stocks. That because any kind of information that comes out from a company which might help them outperform, it feeds into the market straight away. So the ability for people to to active managers to use research and find out, you know, this sort of thing to get ahead, particularly in these kind of markets, is is much more difficult than say, for example, yeah, Indian small caps as as an example. So when we look at these areas, we feel that the ETFs are, you know, by far and away sufficient. And generally speaking. You know, you see all the stats. There are various ones. I think the famous one was the Wall Street Journal, where they found that over a 20-year period, only 20% of active funds are outperformed their passive equivalent. So, you know, taking on that sort of those sort of numbers, you know, the passive funds very much do the job for us. Now we know there's a bit of a financial advice crisis in the UK. Really, it's it's sort of those. I mean, if we roughly say around about 100,000 pounds of investable assets, that's where it seems to be this cutoff in terms of being able to receive um, financial advice and for it to be worthwhile because you know generally advisors the commercials don't make it doesn't make a lot of sense below that amount because they tend to make you know their charges are ad valorem so they're based on as a percentage of, of assets so they don't tend to take on clients with with small amounts of money so it's left these sort of this uh, big big group millions of people in the uk sort of stranded in this in this middle ground where they they haven't been receiving a lot of advice which is part of where digital wealth managers you know have moved in you know that's that's the problem they're solving do you think they're being effective in tackling this crisis absolutely absolutely um and i think it's ultimately breaking down what advice is needed because obviously there's different types and i think for the majority of people in the bracket that you're referring to and for the majority of people generally um there's not a you know there's some complexity but there's it's more about the case of okay what are my goals what am i looking to achieve how am i going to get there you know i have for example three goals i, I want to send children to university i have my retirement and maybe i want to you know have a different house in x number of years um i have this pot of money i have this income how do i get there and that's basically breaking it down. And that's the kind of the simplified investment advice, which is offered. And it's a case of, okay, what's your risk appetite? Perfect. You know, you're kind of a medium to high risk person with these sort of goals, different timeframes, and you can build different portfolios for them and manage it for them. And that's, that covers, you know, like I said, a large proportion of what people need. There's obviously some places, you know, some instances where you might need, I don't know, complicated inheritance tax advice or something like that. But for the, for the most part, this, you know, the, the former of what I just described covers everything. And I think ultimately, if you're able to do that in a very scalable way, you can keep it very low cost. And as we kind of touched on before, scalability and kind of accessibility for people is, 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 is massive for us. And so that allows us to take people on, a, you know, because it's digital and because they can do most of it online, it means that the cost to us per extra person is low. And that means we can, you know, we can scale massively and just bring the cost down for all of, all of the, um, all of these people and, and make it very cost efficient for them to get what they need okay well so how successful are are you guys doing in generally in terms of penetrating the uk investment market yeah doing doing well doing well actually um so i mean to put it into perspective we in 2020 we hit one billion of assets under management in july and then in december 2021 we hit 
2 billion of assets under management. I think what you find with companies like this, and you've seen it all with our peers as well, is it's all about you need to get the ball rolling. And then once the ball's rolling, your growth is pretty exponential. Well, you know, on average, our assets under management have grown about 80% year on year since we launched. And last year alone, we added about 25,000 new clients. So it's really, really kind of, should we say, blowing up. And there's a lot of factors which are, which are feeding into this. Um, obviously, first and foremost is we are growing and we're taking more of a, a market share. But secondly, there's, there's points along, for example, the pandemic and the lockdowns has very much forced a lot of people to go online. And suddenly their willingness to do things digitally has, has grown massively. And that's really, really played, you know, and we saw that in our numbers, in our number of new active customers that we have has uh, really, really grown because people kind of much more willing to, you know, kind of, as I say, move, move from your old face-to-face way of doing things into a digital world. And that helps us to, 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 to help them. And then, you know, you see a lot of people saving more over time and, you know, also looking to invest more. Um, I think obviously you saw today the, the inflation figure came out, I think it was 5.4%, the highest, the highest since 1992. A lot of people are still in cash and they're slowly starting to, to think, what else can I do? Because, you know, on average, my my cash account's giving me, you know, 0.5% and now inflation's at 5.4. Something needs to be done, particularly for your longer-term investments, just to longer-term savings, sorry. And so that's where suddenly we're starting to see a lot more, a lot more growth for ourselves as well. Yeah, I mean, we can definitely see there is a strong compulsion for retail investors to become more involved and then i mean you can see the amount of new account openings across as you guys describe all the digital wealth managers or the diy platforms generally it's been quite good but here's here's the thing um that strikes me about the you know your particular side of, of the industry it's can you gather enough assets because you know even at two billion you know i i work for a mid-sized fund manager that had 320 billion under management and because it's an ad valorem it's a percentage of assets that was quite a profitable business whereas at two billion you know you guys are doing well within that space but still it's a relatively small amount when there's still this sort of ad valorem charging and not only that you've got lots of customers that you, you're acquiring with small amounts of assets so it strikes me that cost customer acquisition costs are probably quite high as well and then the assets they bring in are quite low and just to sort of give this context you know we've seen a lot of merger activity across firms such as yours um you know wealth simples uk ops were bought by your by yourselves um you've got you know new diff big banks now launching services which can obviously absorb some of these expensive costs attached so is this a profitable business model? It seems it's been going on for about a decade, but there's still a lot of loss-making digital wealth platforms out there. Can this be profitable? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned before, the growth rates are absolutely enormous. And while it obviously takes a little while to get going, once it does get going, you know, if the numbers of clients that you're acquiring on a yearly basis is starting to grow and grow and grow. You know, as I mentioned, we took on 25,000 last year. We're looking to take on much more. And then these people will always top up. And again, as you touched on, a lot of people will start uh, with a certain amount just to see how things are. But generally speaking, our traditional, should we say, life cycle of a client is they will start with a with a, a amount that they feel comfortable with. They'll try the service and they think, oh, do you know, this is really, really quite good. So then they'll start to transfer other assets into us, whether it be, you know, previous cash ices, whether it be previous old workplace pensions, things like that. And so that's where we see not just kind of the, the number of clients swelling, but the actual 
value that we're getting out of each client swells quite a lot as well. Um, and so that's the big thing on that side. And I still, you know, we're taking up more and more of the market share uh, and the market itself is growing. So, you know, the number of direct investors in the UK is growing at about 18% per year. And our share of that is growing quite quite significantly as well. And on top of that, you know, what you then look to do as well is, you know, there's a lot of possibilities of where we can go. If you look at what we've done in Italy, we've taken on a partnership with with Post Italianum, who are essentially the Italian post office. They um, are the biggest distributors of financial products in Italy. They have about 500 billion euros of assets. And we've done a partnership with these guys and they've started distributing money from products through their side and that's growing massively. And this is something that we could look to do across other providers, you know, possibly in the UK, this sort of thing, things things to look at on that side of things. So between the kind of natural growth that we can get in our, should we say, kind of direct to consumer business, which is kind of, like I said, exponentially growing. And obviously what we, what we can see in the partnership space, I'm very confident that you know, long term, you know, the, the world is our oyster. We're only really just getting started. I see, I see. So it might drink a fair bit of capital in the short run, but actually it's very much baking in, um, you know, quite a lot of growth for the future. I mean, w- can can you remain independent though? Are we going to see, I mean, th- another one that I, um, who did I miss off? Yes, JP Morgan's purchase of Nutmeg. You know, c- can you remain independent or will you have to be, absorbed in order to survive i think it's very possible um i think the fact that people are willing to invest into this marketplace gives us much more confidence actually and you mentioned obviously the merger with with well simple i mean you know we've taken over their u corporations but i think they have about seven billion dollars in canada so they're not exactly struggling at the moment so no absolutely i think you know there are many ways in which we can go with this and I think we obviously the idea is that we keep our options open but i'm certainly confident we can stay stay independent and you know we don't one of us say possibly without giving too much away, but I don't think we struggle finding people who are wanting to invest in companies like ourselves. And I think that that just shows the confidence that they have in the kind of the long term journey that we're looking at and the, the possibilities that we that we have, I would say. What exciting technology are we going to see emerging in the digital wealth space? It's it's a good question. I think there's a you know, there's a lot of ways that you can go. I mean if you if you break down the the service into kind of two halves, one half being the the kind of more advisory side, and the other half being the actual investment management side. On the investment management side, obviously, you know you can look into different ways of expanding the product offerings, which is something that we're looking at. Not necessarily down the route of particularly new technologies, but finding you know do we expand to maybe more thematic space portfolios? Do we offer? I mean, obviously, we've recently launched our socially responsible portfolios. Can we kind of build out the offering there and you know keep providing more and more info, more and more kind of different products for people to invest in as a as a means to reaching their goals? On the other side, you know, you look at the the wealth management side of things specifically. Here is here is quite an interesting one. It's you know how much of the human element of advice can you replace? Obviously, we've started just simply with the investment advisory side of things. Suddenly, you know, can you know you see other providers out there? They have or other other entities they can kind of help digitally manage your financial planning. That's a first and foremost. You know, cash flows, cash flow into retirement, all these other aspects of people's lives that they need help with how can we manage that digitally and this is something that i find quite quite interesting and something that again if you can do it in a way that's scalable in the way that we have done with our investment advice that would make a very very interesting proposition i think do you think we'll see portfolios that are completely tailored to your own personal needs and 
in a, in a sort of automated, algorithmically processed kind of way. It's you know he can't rule anything out nowadays. There are some incredibly clever people who can write some incredibly clever code. Ultimately, it's 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 just a variety, you know it's, it's it's a matter of the number of variables that you put in and how many variables do you need to make it should we say fully 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 personalized and to what extent is that necessary as well you know for example you can tailor it slightly to be kind of more about cash flows when do you need to have dividends paid when you need to have this but on the flip side you know if you are just investing for your retirement then obviously having something where it says okay this is your 25 year time horizon portfolio that's that's obviously sufficient so it's about breaking down what's what's possible or whether it's you know cost effective to actually do it as well are you finding there's any legacy issues that are holding you guys back? If you started with a, you know, a blank sheet of paper, well, I mean, you kind of did, but in terms of the industry as well, you know, um, are there things that sort of prevent you from innovating as fast as you would like? Well, you know, I, I think it's the same challenges that every company faces, um, particularly when you grow as fast as we are in the, in the, in the life cycle that we are. You know, you you want to you want to build really really fast. You want to release all the new products. You want to you know advertise everywhere and get millions more clients. But obviously, you have to make sure that the you know the the ship is steady and you know that everything works and making sure that the, you know any niggly kind of bugs and stuff that arise are fixed. And you know a big part of what the what what you need to do to offer simplicity is to make the process really smooth and the the, the kind of the user interaction with with the platform with the app needs to be really smooth really you know simple really nice and making sure that that's nice as well as introducing all the exciting new products i think that's where you have to just strike that balance and that's probably where you have to find a more sustainable growth rate which i think we do quite well but i think you know stops you going full hell for leather and doing you know trying to release everything under the sun in one year okay well final question for you then um i just wonder if if you think traditional face-to-face financial advice is going to eventually disappear i mean you sort of touched upon the fact that there are elements of um, financial planning that that can sort of be automated but you know will will there be a time when hybrid services such as yourself really do everything that you need and you don't need a traditional ifa it's a good question. I mean, obviously, you know, a long, long way into the future, I'm sure there'll be a lot of stuff that's automated that we can't even dream of right now. Right now, I think in the current current environment, let's say next 10 years or so, some financial advisors still have hold their place. Some general, I mean, the reason why we love to be high, you know, this hybrid model with much more of a human element is people do really want to have that human touch. So obviously that's something that people will never really grow out of, at least certain generations. And that's where we really want to maintain that, but still finding the complexity around some really, really bespoke or really, really niche client situations, that's going to be something that's going to be hard to digitalize immediately. So, you know, I'm not, I I think there's obviously still a place for traditional face-to-face financial advice, but I think the scope of what what they offer will probably shrink through time. I think doing the, the you know, and that a lot of that will be taken by, should we say, people like ourselves who are trying to digitalize and just make it more cost effective for clients and accessible. I think that that will be the kind of the trend that we see. Chris Rodden, thanks very much. Marcus, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really great to have Chris there on the podcast. Very interesting look at, at what's going on behind the scenes with the digital wealth managers. And I thought, you know, a, a very clear take on what they're interested in you know in the this sort of idea behind automation but making sure that it's scalable and everything sort of works properly and and i think building those services around 
you know what they offer outside of investing and particularly in that in the in the financial planning stage of things i think will be really useful and, and really grateful for uh, retail investors and and people like us who are just trying to to apply some you know this relatively simple stuff but that could have a massive difference in the way in which you manage your finances and and then what that does for you you know in the future so um you know very very intriguing what's going on in that space really and um certainly exciting part of the uk market well aside from that don't forget to read the magazine please email me if you've any questions or indeed suggestions too we're always looking to improve the podcast my email is marcus at steps to investing.com but aside from that have a very good evening until next time goodbye Thank you.